It's good to see each of you. Um, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. That is the second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. I want you to look at, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. Zechariah chapter 9. If you find Malachi, just go back a book. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. We're doing kind of a two-week Advent series. I know that's kind of compact a little bit, but last week we looked at passage from Isaiah as we considered the comfort that God brings his people, even in the midst of chaos, in the midst of, we saw last week, in the midst of their own failures and shortcomings. This morning we're going to look at the joy that God gives us in the coming of our King. Zechariah 9, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's guidance as we do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus that this word so clearly points us to. Father, would you help us now as we consider your truth? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you change us because of what we hear today? Because of what is true and because of the wonderful truth that Christ is our King and he has come. So Lord, would you lead us now in this truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When are you most able to express joy? When are you most able to express joy? You know, we sing a lot about joy during Christmas season, don't we? But are you truly joyful? You truly know the profound sense of peace and confidence that we have because of Jesus. Are you able to genuinely rejoice today? It's unmistakable when we open God's word and when we consider what he has to tell us in it, one of the primary things that God seeks to bring every Christian is a life of lasting joy. It's one of his primary purposes for you to save you, to redeem you, to cleanse you of your sin, to make you an adopted child of the king. But God is after your joy. And friends, if you don't have joy, my prayer and my hope is that you will find it today in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The reason I ask you these questions and ask you to consider your joy today is because there are many things in this world that will seek to rob you of joy. Maybe the demands of work or stress Overcommitment, external pressures. We could just go on and on about the chaotic lives that many of us live. And we know that there are many things that will often creep into our lives and rob us of the joy that God has intended to bring us. One of the things that we have in light of that is that God in his kindness, through his word, often reminds us of truth and brings us to consider 
important things such as joy, such as the call to rejoice. God in his kindness has a word for us even today, even from this prophet, Zechariah, as we consider the truth. We could say the truth about Christmas that we can see through the eyes of the prophet Zechariah some 500 plus years before that first Christmas morning ever dawned. And friends, what the Lord has to say in these two verses, much less the entire book, much less the entire Old Testament, much less the entire Bible, what he has to say in these two verses from from Zechariah chapter nine, my prayer and my hope, and I'm certain that God will help us see the truth of who he is so that we can know what this joy is all about. Again, last week we considered Isaiah's prophecy about a coming Messiah that would bring comfort to God's people. We looked at Isaiah 40, which foresaw a time when Israel would be taken captive to Babylon, but would eventually be released as God delivered them. Well, today's text from Zechariah chapter nine is indeed after that has happened. They've been taken to Babylon. They've been in exile. Now they're back in the land, released from captivity. Zechariah was a prophet who had now returned from exile with one of the first waves of the remnant that came back to the land. They're now back in the city but they've struggled to rebuild. They're discouraged. They're in need of encouragement. Maybe they're, we could say this morning, they're, they're in need of joy. Facing a lot of uncertainty, but the Lord speaks to them in the midst of their anxiety and pressure and calls them to rejoice. Let's consider it here from Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. This is God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is a word spoken from God to his people who've now returned from Babylonian captivity, surrounded by rubble, surrounded by threats of surrounding nations, not knowing what to do. And God speaks in the midst of their anxiety and stress and concern and fear and worry. And he says, rejoice. Rejoice. God's promise of a king gave his people reason to rejoice. Notice he says, rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. These are imperatives, these are commands that God is giving his people in light of the truth of this coming king. That's exactly what I want us to consider this morning as we look at, we could say, three reasons that prompt us to rejoice in light of this king. Let's consider them together today. Reason number one is we we find here the promise of a king. The promise of a king. 
Again, Zechariah had returned with one of the first waves of returning exiles from Babylon. In fact, just to kind of give you a historical perspective of where things are, Zechariah has now returned with some of the people back to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process. And this is the same period of time that Daniel, remember Daniel, is still in Babylon doing his ministry there. Same period of time, some of them are starting to return. Zechariah is back in the land. Daniel's there somewhere in the lion's den probably this time. That's the historical backdrop. So after their return to Jerusalem, Zechariah and the remnant, again, they find themselves surrounded by the rubble of a destroyed Jerusalem and no king. The last king to rule Judah before the Babylonian captivity was Jehoiachin, but now the only ruler back in Jerusalem was a man we know from the first eight chapters of Zechariah, a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And he served as governor. He wasn't a king, but he served as governor. And you see him in the first eight chapters of this book. But by chapter nine, here in, in, in Zechariah, Zerubbabel has faded from the picture. We don't know exactly where, what happened to him, but he's no, longer, he's no longer there. There's no ruler. There's no king. Again, the anxiety, the fear, the worry, what's going to happen now that we're back in this land? Can you imagine the sense of vulnerability that the people of God felt after having come, in back, come, in, come back from exile, now in this land that had been utterly destroyed? There's no king, there's no temple, there's no walls. And here they stand. They might have even wondered if there would ever be a bright day in Jerusalem again. The glory days seem to be gone. But it's at this particular point that God speaks, that God speaks through the prophet Zechariah. He speaks into the midst of their discouragement to tell them actually their glory days are still yet in the future. And he calls them to rejoice, to shout aloud. God gives them a word of hope and promise through this prophet here. He says, I'm sending you a king. And notice the tone by which he gives this promise. He calls them daughter. Oh, daughter of Zion. Oh, daughter of Jerusalem. The tender compassion of God here on display as he speaks to his people. I mean, these have been an obstinate people. They've been hard to, to, to deal with. They're just coming back from captivity. But he cares for them. He loves them and he wants them to know of his tender mercies calls them daughter. He's calling them to rejoice, to rejoice. You know, you consider this command to rejoice, to shout aloud. It's, it's, it's interesting that he gives them that particular command in light of the circumstances they're in. Do you think about it? You, you think about all of, the, all of those movies you've seen where you have these great battles and, and you typically have the good guys and they're usually outnumbered, right? Whether it's Lord of the Rings or some kind of war movie you've seen. There, there tends to be the good guys and, and all of a sudden they find themselves surrounded by this intense battle. They're outnumbered, they're overwhelmed and it looks like everything's going to be lost until right at the last minute, there's a little hill over here and all of a sudden this army comes up over the hill to save the day, Right? some conquering king or some big ruler, some, some, some victorious army comes to, to come to their aid and to bring them hope. 
And all of a sudden you can just imagine in those, in those movie scenes where, where that overwhelmed, outnumbered people begin to shout for joy because they see the reinforcements. When, when the king comes, when the reinforcements comes, there's no reason to give a command to rejoice. It will happen, but we're still 500 years away from that coming. They're still in the midst of that battle. They're still in the midst of being overwhelmed and God is speaking to them in the midst of that and saying, have hope, the king is coming. You're gonna look up one day and you're gonna see him. You're gonna see on the horizon the coming of the king. And he's going to come to your rescue and he's going to come and save you and give you hope. He urges them to rejoice in light of that hope. Friends, they needed a reason to rejoice and God gives them the assurance that there would be one who would come to their aid. There would be a day when the city would be rebuilt and the king that they longed for would enter that city that presently laid in ruins. Now, friends, I want you to think about this for a minute from our vantage point. You think, well, that's all fine and good for the people of that day. What does that have to do with me today? This is 2017. Friends, if they were given reason to rejoice in the coming of the king some 500 plus years before he arrived, then how much more ought we rejoice in this king due to the fact that he has arrived? He has come. He did fulfill the promise that God gave his people. He said, behold, your king is coming. And this is the whole point of Christmas, isn't it? The king has come. The king come, he came into the world. God became flesh to bring salvation for his people. We have the enormous privilege and vantage point of reading now this promise here in Zechariah and all the prophets for that matter and seeing how the promise has, has come to pass in the arrival of the Messiah or else there would be no Christmas. It's because God is faithful and demonstrates his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. We ought to be a people of joy. Joy ought to be the posture of God's people. All the time. You say, well, you don't understand exactly what I've been through lately, Pastor. No, I don't. But God, I know here, is commanding, commanding. He's commanding his people to rejoice in the midst of utter destruction in the hope of a king who would come 500 years from then. They didn't know the time frame exactly. Joy ought to be the posture of God's people. We read from the gospel of Luke chapter two there in the narrative of the coming of Christ. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Friend, you might find yourself overwhelmed by all that we face in this world today. The news cycle is relentless in feeding us all kinds of things to be discouraged over. 
But when you stay near to the promises of God, when you're able to see so much and all that God has done to keep his word, and you know that he can be fully trusted and that we have a great hope of a glorious future, you have every reason to rejoice today. The Lord would tell us as his people, even today, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Rejoice. Behold, the king is coming. Indeed, he has come and he will be coming again. So we have this promise of a king. But what about the character of this king? Let's look at point number two. In verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And then it begins to describe this king. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a foal. A colt, a foal of a donkey. You know, Israel had a vast array of different kings in its history. Even when the kingdom divided and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there were kings who would come and go and and many of them would often be described as, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And occasionally you would get a good one and he did what was right in God's eyes. But even the righteous of the righteous kings, David, a man after his God's own heart, he still committed adultery, didn't he? He still had sin in his life. He, He still struggled Israel had these different kings that would come and go throughout their history. But none of them were lasting. So when we read this next phrase here in Zechariah 9, behold, your king is coming to you. This is the king that they had long anticipated. This is the king that would come and he would be the one that would rule his people, not just for a temporary period of time, but forever. So it'd be a lasting rule. Now we know that this passage, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you know that it sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? You probably heard, as, especially as, as you read verse nine, righteous and having salvation as he humbled and mounted on a donkey. By the way, Zechariah is one of the most quoted prophets, if not the most quoted prophet in the entire book of the New Testament, in all the books of the New Testament, the Gospels especially. This text is quoted in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21, verse five, when Jesus makes his final entry into Jerusalem, his triumphant entry before his crucifixion. Remember the disciples were sent ahead before he comes to Jerusalem. They were sent ahead to a town near Jerusalem where they would find a donkey. They were to untie it and bring it to Jesus. And if they were asked, why are you taking the donkey? Our master has need of it. And that is exactly what takes place there. And then we read this in verses four and five of Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So we see here, friends, that the New Testament makes clear that Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled in the ministry, in the coming, in the ministry of Jesus. But I want you to notice several things about his coming, the, the character of this king, the thing that would most notably mark his reign, his rule. 
quite different than the other kings that Israel had been used to. Number one, he's a righteous king. The term righteous here, we see it in, in verse nine. Behold, your king is, com- king is coming to you righteous. It's likely more of a reference here to the kind of reign that he would bring. However, you cannot really separate the nature of his rule, the nature of his reign from his own character, from the nature of his reign, or from, the, from, from, from his reign and his rule to the character. His reign would be one of righteousness and justice because he is righteous and just. So you see that he's a righteous king. The people in Zechariah's day and onward could be encouraged that even through adversity, even through oppression, even through the things that they were experiencing in the present, that there was a coming, a king that would bring true and lasting justice for God's people. This meant that no evil, that there would be no evil that would go unpunished and no good unrewarded this king would come and bring righteousness because he was righteous. Notice number two, he's a saving king. Having salvation is he. This king is a savior, a deliverer, but one of a different sort. The people we know likely thought of a different kind of deliverance. They were likely anticipating a different kind of rescue, but God was planning an even greater and far lasting one that they could ever imagine. Remember the account in Matthew's gospel where the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph. Jeremy quoted this text just a few minutes ago. He was told concerning Mary that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That was the mission of this king, he will save his people from their sins. He didn't say that he would come and restore Jerusalem, though he would. He didn't say that he would come and drive out Rome. He he didn't say that they would never face opposition again. The angel said that this king, this Jesus, would be born to save his people from their sins. As the salvation was massively greater than a restored Jerusalem, as good as that would be. The salvation was, was so much greater. This king would come with a different agenda. Indeed, Jesus even said of his own ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This, this king did not come with political agenda. This king did not come with some kind of military strike. This king came humbled, mounted on a donkey to save sinners. This is exactly why Jesus came. This is exactly why we celebrate Christmas. Friends, don't let anyone tell you anything else. When you read God's word and you consider all that, all that God had promised, Christmas is the celebration of the culmination of that promise when God invaded the world and this king, just as promised, came to rescue sinners. He's a righteous king. He's a saving king, but he's a humble king. Look at the next point. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, Israel would have been looking for a strong political military figure. They've been in captivity. Now they're returning and now they're, they're still kind of under watch, if you will. 
They just simply wanted their freedom. They just wanted their city back. They wanted someone to, to come and, and rescue them. They wanted to feel safe and secure and protected. So there would be, they would be looking for this strong political military figure that would push away the threatening nations and rebuild Jerusalem stronger than it ever was. But friends, this king would not come riding in on a war horse, surrounded by military might. He would not come as a political genius. He would come riding in on a donkey. The donkey here serves as a picture of humility and peacefulness. One writer says the donkey stands out as a deliberate rejection of this symbol of arrogant trust in human might. Jerusalem's king is of humble demeanor, yet victorious. And so it always has been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior. Friend, the, the humility of this king is a far cry from any other king they had known in their history. His humility would lead them to, to, to be the people that they have, that God had called them to be. His humility would lead him to be born in a lowly stable, to live a common life where he often had no place to lay his own head. And then we get to the book of Philippians in chapter two, where Paul's reflecting back upon the ministry of Jesus and speaking of him, he's calling the church there at Philippi to, to unity. And he says this in, in chapter two, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want you to think about this. This same king that would come riding in on a donkey in Jerusalem to be crucified, is the very one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the one, this is the one that would come to save the nations, the one that would come to save the world, the one that was righteous to bring justice, the one that was, that, that was marked by salvation, that would bring salvation, the one that was humble, even humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, taking the place of sinners in, as a substitute so that the full anger and weight and wrath of God would be placed upon his shoulders so that our sin could be atoned for. Friends, that is something to rejoice about. That is something to be, to be filled with joy over these wonderful truths about who Jesus is. 500 years even before his coming, now we know he's come. Now we know what he did and how he exactly fulfilled these prophecies. Jesus is the foundation of our joy. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We always desire 
unbelievers to gather with us here. But if you're here today and you would acknowledge that that you're not a Christian, we would just simply urge you to consider the truth of who Jesus is. You may have questions. We would love to talk with you about those questions. Friend, here is the, you may be seeking joy and you find moments of happiness and pleasure here and there and that kind of ebbs and flows, but you've just, you just, you have something missing. Could it be that you've never yielded in faith to this king who has come? We would just tell you today that you're not a Christian, that the hope that the hope that this world has is not wrapped up in success and not wrapped up in the things of this world, but it's wrapped up in this king who came into Jerusalem on a donkey, who would humble himself to die on a cross for people just like you. And friend, if you would simply look to him and place your hope in him and turn from your sin and, and, and turn in faith and trust in this Jesus, The promise of scripture is that your sins will be fully forgiven, that you'll be adopted as a child of the king forever and ever. And you will be given every reason to rejoice, to have joy, even when things are terrible in this world, you can have joy because of knowing Christ. The joy of knowing that your sins have been forgiven. If you would simply look to Jesus, place your hope in him, place your faith in him. Friends, that's the whole point that we talk about this Christmas It's the whole reason he came into the world to save us. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that? Friend, if not, look to Jesus and trust in him and know your sins could be forgiven and you'll be adopted as his child forever. See, the character of this king. So we see the promise, the character, but I want you to notice the impact in verse 10. The impact of the king. The Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here in verse 10, the Lord refers to Ephraim and Jerusalem. Remember that after Solomon, if you go back and read through the history of Israel there in the historical books of the Old Testament, that after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ephraim became kind of shorthand for the northern kingdom, while Jerusalem became known, connected to as part of the southern kingdom. And so when he refers to Ephraim here and Jerusalem, he's addressing both the northern and southern kingdoms that had long been divided. And he's saying here that there's coming a day when they will be united again. But not just that, there's, there's more. He declares that, that he will cut off the war horse, the chariots, the battle bow from them. There's, no, there's not gonna be conflict. Implied here is that the two kingdoms would be united and that their land would no longer be a battleground. Indeed, they had been instructed back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses one through four, not to find their hope in chariots and war horses, but to trust the Lord for victory. The same is true here. They were not to take up arms again. They were were not to take up arms and, and be in conflict again with each other or even with the surrounding nations, but they were to put all of their hope in the Lord to be their rescue. And that's a great reminder for us as well. 
It's a great reminder for, for what we are to be as God's people. You know, God's people would have been tempted back in this day and time to put their hope in political deliverance, in some kind of military deliverance. And God's saying, no, put your hope in the Prince of Peace. Put your hope in this one, this king that's coming. And I think that's a great word for us today. Too many Christians, too many Christians are putting their hope in political successes. Friend, if your mood changes by what legislation gets passed in Washington, your hope is not in Christ. If your mood changes because of someone in your midst that may see something different politically than you, your hope is not in Christ. You're not looking to Jesus. You're putting your hope too much in the things of this world and and political victories and successes and even even the conquering of military might. And while we do have obligations as citizens of a nation and to our national defense and those things which we must be and should be engaged in, none of these are what we are hoping in as citizens of God's kingdom. Sometimes Christians can blur the two and and live, live as if the kingdom advance and political and, and a particular political party affiliation go hand in hand. And that's foolish. The Lord is reminding his people here is to simply look to this king who is to come. Not to some earthly might, not to some kind of political savior or some kind of military savior, but the one who would come and crush the head of a serpent. The one who would come and be nailed to a cross so that sin could be forgiven. And if we're gonna know peace of God's, as God's people, our eyes must be on Jesus and him alone. Remind you of the passage I read earlier in our beginning. For to us a child is born, to us a son, of, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You don't put your hope in a government, put it in Jesus's rule. Put it in Jesus's government because it's a lasting one that will bring only true justice and true hope, true forgiveness. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this and indeed he has in Christ. Not only was this promise for Israel, the promise is true for every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. You see it right here in the text. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This was not just good news for Jerusalem, though it was. This was not just good news for the surrounding villages and communities in Israel, though it was. This was good news for the ends of the earth, from sea to sea, for all nations, so that they too could rejoice and have hope. We'll give you three quick points of application as we conclude. What are we to make of this and how are we to take it and live in light of this promise? We'll give you three R's. First one is reject. Reject any notion that puts hope of salvation in the hands of anything worldly. Our hope is in the Prince of Peace, not some earthly ruler or system. 
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And thus we must be setting our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of this world. Richard Phillips said this, because of Jesus, Christians may ride into trial or difficulty, not on a war horse, not in a chariot of war, but meek and lowly on a donkey, relying on our Savior to give us total victory through faith in his name. Reject any kind of aspiration of putting hope in the things of this world. Number two, receive. Receive. Maybe you're here today and I talking with you earlier and, and, and you don't know if you're really a Christian or not, but maybe you'd say you're definitely not and you're, you're, you're considering these things this morning. Friend, look to this promised king and put your hope in him. Receive this king as your savior and as your Lord, knowing that only through faith in him can you have this peace and can you have true and lasting joy. Receive him. And number three, Rejoice. Friends, Christ has come. Christmas is the celebration of this promise fulfilled. The King has come and He has brought peace for the world. You may not feel like this world has much hope, but friend, there is a King who has come and has promised to come again. Therefore, we have every reason to rejoice in Him. Thomas Reed once said, speaking of the Christian, this is what he wrote. It is the Christian's privilege to rejoice. A God of sovereign love wills the happiness of his people. As nothing but sin can separate the soul from God or cause him to hide his face from us, so nothing but sin ought really to dampen our joy. If you are here today and your joy has been dampened, one of two things are true, maybe both. One, you've either not placed your faith in Jesus, or two, even as a Christian, you've taken your eyes off of him and you're putting too much hope in the things of this world and maybe you're living in patterns of sin that you need to repent of. A God of sovereign love wills the happiness of his people. Christians, I said this before, and I think I stole it from Spurgeon. Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. Ought to be the happiest people in the world. They ought to be able to naturally rejoice, to shout aloud, because Christ has come. The King has come. We sing, don't we? Joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Friends, not only has the Lord, the Lord is come, the Lord has come and the Lord will come again as our reigning king. So let us rejoice in him this day and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning to be reminded of your truth. We thank you for this great hope that's ours in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us reason to rejoice. You have given us reason to shout aloud today. Father, my prayer for your people and for myself even this morning is that you would help us to have eyes fixed firmly upon this Christ, upon the one who came to give himself for our sake.
Lord, that we would not be placing our hope in ourselves or hope in other things. Father, that our hope, that our confidence, that our full trust would be in the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, would you give us reason to rejoice today? Especially in light of these wonderful truths that we've seen from your prophet so long ago. Truths that we now know how the story goes, how the story ends. Father, I pray that if there are those who are struggling with joy today, that you would give them renewed joy in Christ. If there are those who are gathered with us today that aren't yours, that they have not trusted in you, that you would awaken them to faith today. Help them to see their need of you and that they would place their hope in Christ. Father, would you make us a joyful people? Would you make us a people that rejoice always in the Lord? Father, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.